Uh, Please, if you have a Bible, turn, open up to Colossians. We're going to continue, pick up again and continue our series in Colossians this morning. And uh, this morning we are, we're still in chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 15 to 17. So verses 15 to 17. And the title of this morning's message is The Supreme Sufficiency of Christ in This World. Hopefully that in itself is a bit of a headline. This is exciting stuff. (laughs) The supreme sufficiency of Christ in this world. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Nearly 130 years ago, in 1893, a great exhibition was held in Chicago to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus discovering America. And an incredible 21 million people visited the exhibits. They visited the city of Chicago. It was an opportunity for America to show off its great advancements to the world. And one of the exhibits there was called the World Parliament of Religions. And in it, representatives of the great world religions at the time were there to present their ideas and then try and come up together with a new, uh, synthesized, one-world religion between them. And it probably sounded as crazy to the Christians then as it would do to us this morning to try and do that. But one well-known American evangelist, who was called D.L. Moody, saw the great exhibition that was happening in that city as a great opportunity for evangelism, because the city was so full of tourists and visitors. And so he sent out evangelists to preach all over the city, and they preached Christ in churches and theatres and circus tents. But Moody's friends weren't entirely pleased with him. They wanted him to spend his time and his effort and his words on actively calling out and attacking this idea, this crazy idea of a world parliament of religions. But Moody refused. He wanted to just keep on preaching the gospel, and here is the reason he gave. He said to his friends, I am going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will turn to him. And as one writer explained it, D.L. Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ, clearly presented, would do the job. And indeed it did. The Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered to be uh, one of the, uh, the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's life. And thousands came to Christ through that gospel preaching. Now Paul's letter to the Colossians contains several suggestions that some false teaching, was a new kind of false teaching, was being exhibited in town. Not quite a world parliament of religions, but certainly the idea that some extra spiritual additions might be necessary to add in alongside Jesus in order to live a fuller and more fruitful Christian life. 
And it seems like some of those false ideas had started to taint the Colossians' view of Jesus. Sure, they still appreciated him, but they were less sure that Jesus alone could really be enough for them and all that life might throw at them. And so they were becoming increasingly distracted from him. And Paul, very wisely, like D.L. Moody did in Chicago, seemed immediately to discern what it was that lied at the heart of their dissatisfaction. He realized their picture of Jesus was just too small. They had lost sight of the true supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And so the Jesus that now came to their minds when they woke up in the morning or when they sat down for breakfast, when they spent their day at work and when they lay down on their pillow at night, was just too small. The Jesus that they'd once put their trust in and chose to follow had become less and less impressive to them as time had gone by. And the inevitable result had been they no longer believed he was big enough to be all they needed. And that's why they started to look elsewhere to try and supplement him. It's like, if think about it like this, it's like they're trying to build a wall with Jesus as one brick and then a few religious rituals as another brick and then a little bit of mysticism as another brick and maybe a few superstitions as another brick. Like those uh, eminent religious leaders who met together in Chicago to bring all the best bits of different religions together to create a better set of beliefs. And uh, though we might not go to that extreme, couldn't it be true that we all at various times and in various ways have been tempted to do something the same? Whether it's the temptation just to add a little bit of religion or a little bit of mysticism or a little bit of superstition or a little bit of materialism into what we already have in Jesus. Or it's the temptation to think of Jesus as just being like one little cog in the big machinery of our lives, one brick among many in the big wall that we're building with our lives day by day. And that's all well and good if Jesus really is just metaphorically the size of a brick. But what Paul wants to give us in this morning's passage is a sense of proper perspective, a proper sense of scale. He wants to remind the Colossians that Jesus is in reality Everest. And you don't try and add to Mount Everest. Think about it. Who stands at the bottom of Mount Everest with a little wheelbarrow full of bricks and says to themselves, well, I think it needs building up a little bit, so I'm going to add a few bricks to what we have before me here. I'm going to make it a bit more secure and sufficient and impressive. That would be ridiculous. But when you and I and the Colossians try to add to Jesus, that is even more ridiculous. And Paul's response is just one of beautiful D.L. Moody-like simplicity. He wants simply to show us Jesus as he really is again. The all-supreme and all-sufficient Jesus. And like Moody, he's confident that when we see him again in all of his beauty and majesty, we'll turn from all of our own attempts to make a little pile of bricks. And we'll instead remember that we already have all that we need in him. So this whole next section of the letter from verses 15 to 23 is all about the complete sufficiency of Christ in every area of life, beginning this week with his supreme sufficiency over creation. 
Uh, so next week we're going to hear about his supreme sufficiency in the church and then in our salvation. But this morning it's his sufficiency in creation. And in verses 15 to 17, Paul lays out three compelling reasons why Christ is supremely sufficient. Why he's all that we could ever need as we live out our lives in this world in which we live. And the first reason he gives us is this. That Christ is all we need because he perfectly reveals God. Verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now the Bible is really clear from start to finish that God is invisible. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. John 1.18 agrees, no one has ever seen God. But 2,000 years ago, something almost impossible happened. Someone revealed the invisible God for human eyes to see. And it was so shocking that John uh, could actually write in his gospel, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Isn't that an unbelievable claim when you think about it? Everyone knows God is invisible. The Bible tells us God is invisible, yet Jesus came to make the invisible God visible for us to see. And that is where Paul chooses to begin as he works to open the eyes of the Colossians to see the real Jesus again. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, it's from the Greek word for image that we get our word icon, which is another word for a portrait. So you could say Jesus is like a portrait of God. Do you want to see God? Well, just look at his portrait. Look at Jesus. But it's even more than that. When Paul uses the word image, he doesn't just mean an artist's impression or a pretty good sketch or a lifelike portrait. Jesus wasn't just a picture of God on earth. He wasn't just like an ambassador representing the king of a foreign country. You know, sort of a, he's a bit like the king, but not actually the king. No, when we look at Jesus, we are actually looking at God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is all that we need to see God. We don't need to look to other spiritual practices or experiences to see God or see more of God. We don't need to introduce religious rituals or new age spirituality alongside our Christianity. We don't need to dabble with other religions or pseudo-spiritual practices to encounter more of God. They will in reality only lead us away from God because Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is everything we need to see God. Now it's not of course that Christ shows us what God looks like physically. God doesn't look physically like anything. God is spirit. You can't represent him like many of us perhaps used to do when we were growing up in Sunday school and we drew him as a sort of a friendly looking face with a beard up in the clouds. It's not important what Jesus' physical body looked like. In fact, the Bible says he was pretty unimpressive looking. He looked just as ordinary as us. But what Jesus reveals about God is far more important 
than whether or not he has a beard. Jesus reveals the true character and nature of God. Which means when we see Jesus commanding the wind and the waves, we see God's own power on display. When we see Jesus casting out demons, we see God's authority on display. When we see Jesus speaking the truth to his hearers, we see God's own trustworthiness. And when we see the love Jesus has for sinners, we see God's love, his great love, for people just like us, vividly on display. Now here's one reason why that's also important. Because sometimes the reason we doubt God's sufficiency for our own lives and start looking to other things, things instead is quite simply because we lose sight of what God is like. And by that, again, I don't mean we lose sight of what he looks like. I mean we lose sight of what he is really like. We struggle to imagine how God, one so mighty and infinite and holy, could possibly be interested in the seemingly mundane details of our everyday lives. How can I be sure God really cares about such a seemingly small and insignificant person like me and the everyday challenges that I face? Who's to say that I can rely on him being there for me when I'm just feeling a bit under the weather? Who's to say that I can lean on him when my kids start to play up again or when my heart starts, my impatience starts to play up again all the more? What about when I find myself on the phone with a difficult client at work or when I'm feeling low and I don't know why? Or when I'm worried about tomorrow or troubled about something that went terribly wrong yesterday? Who's to say that God is even interested in helping me? Before I can rely on his all-sufficiency, I need to know he cares for me. I need to see God's heart. Is there anywhere I can see God's heart? And perhaps we don't actually expect an answer to that. But the incredible answer that comes back is yes. There is a way we can see God's heart. There is a way to be certain about what he's like. Because Jesus, the invisible Sorry, the, the image of the invisible God perfectly reveals God to us. He shows us perfectly what God's heart is like. And so we see that God's heart is full of mercy. Because we can see the mercy Jesus had toward the broken people he met. We can know God's heart is full of compassion because we see the compassion Jesus had for the weary and faint of heart. We can be sure God's heart is full of tenderness and forgiveness because we see Jesus' tenderness and forgiveness generously bestowed on so many of the guilty sinners that he met. Christ's heart is God's heart, clothed in flesh and on display, and it is still God's heart, the heart of God in Christ for us today. So that's the first way in which Christ is supremely sufficient. He's all that we need in this world because firstly this morning, we don't look, need to look anywhere else to see and discover more of God. All that God is, is revealed in Christ. Secondly, 
Paul, Paul tells the Colossians, Christ is all we need because he created and reigns over all. This is verse 15 and 16. Christ is all we need because he created and reigns over all. Verse 15, first of all he says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now um, let me ask you, what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word firstborn? Well, you think about the first person born, don't you? But that's not what Paul is saying here. He isn't saying that the Son of God was the first person to be born. We know that because there was never a time when God the Son did not exist eternally in the Godhead with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So firstborn is not speaking of a time when Jesus was born. What it actually speaks of is his supreme rule and authority. Psalm 89 verse 27 says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So by calling Christ the firstborn here, Paul is telling us that Christ is the highest of the kings of the earth. He is higher than anything else in all creation. Now just think about that for a moment. That means any created thing that we might think about looking to because we've started to think that maybe Jesus is lacking in some way. Maybe it's something as, as ordinary and mundane. We start to look to, oh, that new car, a new home, a new job, a, a new lifestyle accessory, or a new kind of spirituality. Whatever we might be looking to actually lies far, far beneath him. He is the high king. He reigns over all created things. Everything else is far less than the best because nothing can come close to matching him or taking him on. He holds the highest honor. He takes down any contender. That's who this Jesus is. And another thing this word firstborn tells us is that he's also the rightful ruler the inheritor of all created things as well. It all rightly belongs to him. Every atom and every star, every mountain, every blade of grass, every microorganism, every human being, they are, we are his inheritance, his possession. We all have, our, we all have his name stamped on us, rather like, do you remember... Andy in Toy Story, who made sure that his name was on each of his toys because they all belonged to him. Well, Jesus looks out at all of creation, including all of us, and he says, these ones, these things, these people, they all belong to me. Now, why, we might ask, is that true? Why is Christ the inheritor of all creation? The simple answer, as Paul goes on to explain, is that he's the inheritor of all things simply because he is the maker of all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Jesus has firstborn rights over everything because he made everything. He's like a great artist who created a masterpiece. He has full ownership rights now over all that he has made. Just think about some of the uh, masterpieces, or maybe you wouldn't call them masterpieces, but the things that you made in the past. 
Uh, kids, maybe you've made something, the kids that are left in here, maybe you've made something recently in school. Here's the thing, once you create something, you own it. It's yours to do with it whatever you will. I remember uh, once making a table in school, and it really wasn't very good. But because I'd made it myself with my own hands, I was very proud of this table. Uh, I loved it, and I kept it for many years. Who knows what friends and family thought of this wobbly piece of wood uh, that was standing there on, I think it did have four legs, but that's as much as you could say about it. But it was mine, through and through, and no one could take it from me. And here in the same way, we're told that in reality, all things belong to Christ because it turns out that he is the maker of all things. And notice here, Paul makes really clear, nothing has been left out. All things were created by him, verse 16, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. One writer, Mark Maynell, writes, This, therefore, includes the microscopic and the cosmic, the physical and spiritual, the biological and geological, even the human and demonic. The entire Roman Empire, from the North Sea to the Black Sea, was under his sway as its creator. The satanic realm of deception and evil is under his sway as its creator. The entire cosmos of stars and constellations is under his sway as its creator. All that we are and all that exists around us belongs to him because he made every single thing that exists in all creation. From the smallest subatomic particle to the, uh, I learned this week, the 800,000 different kinds of insects that exist in the world. And I feel that's bad news if you just don't like insects. There's a lot of them out there. To our own sun, which is big enough to hold 1.3 million planet Earths. To the biggest star in our galaxy, which has a radius 400 times greater than our sun and which burns 4 million times hotter and bigger things still. Christ created the Milky Way which contains hundreds of billions of stars. And beyond that, he created, scientists think, as many stars in the sky as there are grains of sand on all the beaches on earth. That, I think, is mind-blowing. And even more so when we remember that the one who created all these things then came down personally into our world to redeem us from our sins. As Graham Kendrick once wrote, and he really ought to enter the pantheon of great hymn writers, I think. Graham Kendrick once wrote, Come see his hands and his feet, the scars that speak of sacrifice, hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Christ, whose blood was shed for our redemption, as we heard last week, that same Christ flung every star into space at the universe's creation. He created it all. He made it all. It all belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian from a century ago, famously said, there is not one square inch in all of God's creation over which Jesus did not cry out, mine. 
And this same Jesus also knows every hair on our heads. He made and he knows and he is the rightful owner of all that makes up you and me. We too gloriously belong to him. And just think about how good it is that we belong to him. What meaning that brings to our lives. We're not just a meaningless bundle of atoms coming together at random and going nowhere. We have a creator. We have a purpose. We are his. We exist for him. We belong to him. And next of all, think what it tells us about his all-sufficiency for our lives in this world as well. Everything we'll ever own or enjoy, everything we hope one day to possess, it all belongs to him already. Think about everything that stuns you and delights you and takes your breath away as you look at the creation around you. Every sunset, every sunrise, every breath of wind in the trees, every storm out at sea, every piece of delicious chocolate, every sound of children laughing and playing, whatever it might be, whatever beautiful and inspiring thing it is that you love to hear or taste or touch or see, it's all Christ's handiwork. It's his artistry. He put it there in the very beginning for all to see. It is the way it is because he made it like it is because he is like that. And then think about everything that appears to promise you a better life and a better future. All those things that appear to promise you more security and comfort, happiness and pleasure, joy and more spiritual depth and experience, be it friends or homes or food or clothing or holidays or retirement savings, many of them good gifts that he gives us generously to enjoy, but none of them truly available anywhere outside of and away from him. And none of them can ever truly compare to the promise that is found in setting our hope, putting our trust in him. Trusting him to provide for every one of our physical and spiritual needs. And then think about everything that tends to worry you. Everything that seems to threaten you or pose seeming risk or harm to you. Think about every superpower nation, every world leader, every bully, every sickness, every tragedy, every spiritual power or authority, everything that seems so much bigger than you and which you think could overwhelm and undo you, Christ is the creator and therefore the Lord over them all. Not a single one of them exists outside of his overarching rule. And so there's nothing they can do to influence him or add enrichment to him, nothing they can do to thwart his plans and overcome him. He is supreme. As someone once said, they have neither treasures to give to nor terrors with which to frighten the one who lives under Christ's sovereign rule. They have neither treasures to give us nor terrors with which to frighten us if we live under Christ's sovereign rule. That's the second reason why Christ is supremely sufficient for the Colossians and for us as we live out every aspect of our daily lives in this world. All that we need is found in him. 
All safety and security, all peace and all purpose, all delight and deep, satisfying joy is in him. He is all we need because he created and reigns over all. And thirdly and finally this morning, Paul reminds the Colossians, again, Christ is all we need because he holds all things together. He holds all things together. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Here Paul tells the Colossians that Christ is not only the creator, he's also the powerful sustainer of all things. He is the glue that holds the universe together. Were he then for a single moment to pause, to hit pause from his sanctifying, sorry, his sustaining activity, were he to take the merest Nanosecond of a break, all creation would disintegrate. Uh, and this one's for the Marvel fans out there. Just picture the, uh, the scene. Sorry if you haven't watched this. Picture the, the snap, you know, at the end of Avengers Infinity War where half of all life in the universe just disintegrates in an instant. That's what would happen to all created things if Christ took even a moment's break from holding all things together. But he never does. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And there is apparently, I couldn't find it, but there is apparently a medieval painting which shows Jesus in the clouds and below him is the world of humans and nature and from Christ to every object is painted this thin golden thread. And it's the artist's way of saying that Christ is responsible for sustaining the existence of every created thing. And that, of course, includes you and me. No human being can ever exist independently of him, however much we might like to think that we can. We all depend on him moment by moment for life and breath and existence. Every creature, and, and, and not to mention every piece of matter, is totally indebted every second of every day to Christ and his sustaining power. So let's think then for a moment about what that teaches us about his supreme sufficiency and what it teaches us about the wisdom of our putting our hope and trust in him rather than thinking we need to supplement him and add to him and put more bricks on top of him. Think about all those things, first of all, we're tempted to turn to and trust in instead of him when we think Jesus is too small for us when we think he's insufficient to help us in all the things we encounter day by day. Every other thing we might look to to supplement Jesus, to build higher on Jesus, depends on Jesus for its second-by-second existence. Every second, that thing that we might think is going to supplement him only exists because he's upholding it by the word of his power. So there's nothing and no one that we could turn to in all creation that is bigger and stronger and surer than him. Isn't it then reasonable to think that the one who created and sustained all creation from its first beginning to its final glorious destiny, isn't it reasonable to believe that he's capable of sustaining each and every one of us in every aspect of our lives, in this world and as Christians? 
Isn't it reasonable to believe that he's entirely able to sustain us and protect us and keep us all the way to glory? A neighbor once told us, I don't know if it's true, but he was very convincing. He once told me, as I was trimming our front garden or hacking at it, that the original owner of our house, who planted all the trees and the shrubs in our front garden, was actually the head gardener at Deerham Park. How saddened that man would be now to see the state of the garden. (laughs) But who better to plant and tend and sustain our tiny garden than the head gardener of Deerham Park? Just imagine meeting him uh, and questioning whether he was really up to the task, whether he really had the skills and the resources and the ability to care for that tiny bit of land that lies outside the front of our house care for this little garden, he'd say? Don't you know I already tend to 720 acres of land at Deerham Park? Of course you can trust me to completely sustain and give life in every possible way to your compact little front garden. And wouldn't Jesus essentially say the same thing too about each and every one of our lives here this morning? You wonder whether I'm sufficient, he might say, to sustain you and keep you and provide for you and hold your little life together. Have you not heard? Have you not seen how every moment of every day I'm sustaining a trillion galaxies in the sky? They're all held together by me. Trust me, therefore, he might say, ye of little faith, I'll keep holding you together too. I'm supremely sufficient to keep on forever sustaining and helping and upholding and even fixing you. Kent Hughes tells the story of a South American company who purchased a fine printing press from a firm in the United States. And after it had been shipped, he writes, and completely assembled, the workmen could not get it to operate properly. The most knowledgeable personnel try to remedy the difficulty and bring it into proper adjustment, but to no avail. Finally, the company wired a message to the manufacturer, asking that the company send a representative immediately to fix it. Sensing the urgency of the request, the U.S. firm chose the person who had designed the press. But when he arrived on the scene, the South American officials were skeptical. The young man was obviously wet behind the ears. After some discussion, they sent this cable to the manufacturer. Your man is too young. Send a more experienced person. And the simple reply came back. He made it. He can fix it. We are those, if we're Christians here this morning, who can say with absolute joy-filled certainty, Christ, the image of the invisible God, the Creator and sustainer of all things is my helper, my maker, my redeemer. What or whom shall I fear? Where else could I turn each day for all that I need in this world than to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how we bow down before you this morning, not only as the creator and sustainer of the world, but also as the saviour and sustainer of our lives. Lord, we thank you that we are not our own, but we belong to you. We exist for you. 
and wonder of all wonders, we exist to know you. Lord, we praise you for being to us the image of the invisible God. Thank you for revealing so vividly your own heart and the Father's heart of love for us. Lord Jesus, we pray, would you help us as we continue our day-to-day lives in this world to see you as you really are, in all of your glorious supremacy and all of your generous sufficiency. Help us to worship you and treasure you and build our lives and our hopes and all that we have around you. And Lord, we ask, protect us against trading you for the multitude of things that this world tries to offer us, which are neither supreme nor sufficient, nor all that we need in the way that you are. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.